Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a global council podcast. My name is Conan Darcy. I'm your regular host and I am the Senior Practice Director at Global Council. Today we have the latest in our In Conversation series with the leading thought leaders and thinkers in the tech sector. And I'm delighted today to say that we have Elizabeth Denham who will be joining us. Elizabeth is the former UK Information Commissioner. She served in that role from 2016 to 2021. During that period, she also had a spell chairing the Global Privacy Assembly. These days, Elizabeth is a consultant to Baker McKenzie on data and tech and has a number of other positions, including working on the foundation board for Five Rights. So Elizabeth, uh, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. It's a real uh, pleasure to have you on the podcast this week. I'm delighted to be here. So what, I, what I'd like to do is talk about the evolution of data protection regulation in the UK, in the EU and globally. And as part of that, it would be great to do three things. The first is to look back your experience as information commissioner during a genuinely fascinating time. Not only was it a turbulent time in British politics, but it was also the period in which we saw the general data protection regulation, the GDPR, come into force in the UK, but also across the EU. And to get your reflections on that um, would be great. Then it would be interesting to hear where you think we are in the UK around the reform of the GDPR. We have a bill uh, coming up to Parliament soon, and the status quo of where you see uh, reforms moving forward. And the third point would be to look a bit further ahead. We might have a reform of the GDPR in 2024, 2025, when we get a new European Commission. So just to speculate and discuss what maybe will be in there, what should be in there, and just to get your views on how you think the GDPR will cope with the evolution of new technologies. So if we could just start on that first point, um, we discussed this a little bit before um, when we were, were chatting, but if you ask some people in Whitehall, in, in government in the UK, and you ask them about the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, the UK's data protection uh, regulator who you used to lead, and if you ask them about its record to date, you will sometimes hear a twin criticism, and that twin criticism goes as follows. The first is that the ICO has not landed enough big tech scalps, and it has not had an equivalent, say, of the big fine we saw uh, for Instagram in Ireland uh, a few months back. The second would be that the ICO pursued too many political investigations, and by political investigations, we're talking there about some of the issues related to vote leave and Brexit, and also to the leak of uh, video recording of uh, Matt Hancock when he was a cabinet minister. So I recognise uh, you probably would like to contest that characterization. So I'd just like to sort of hear your response to that. Is there any merit in that critique, or you know how do you how do you see that? Yeah, I, I mean it's interesting. Um, my first point would be that as the ICO, my focus was on the public interest. So what do people really see? And a lot of the attention, a lot of the focus, a lot of the cases that um, I led investigations for were about maybe what you'd think of more mundane concerns, predatory marketing by, by companies, um, and you know nuisance calls and nuisance texts, data breaches. These are really important um, and all kinds of public surveys that we conducted. 
people are concerned about the security of their data. So you would have seen us do a lot of work around the Talk Talk case, um, Yahoo, British Airways, Marriott, Equifax. It goes on and on. And and so there's a there was a big focus on security. But why didn't we get more tech scalps? Um, <clears throat> why were we not focused on big tech? Well, I think we were. And the two investigations that that you just mentioned there, Conan, um, the one into data-driven elections, the other into disclosure of security fo- footage, those were issue and concern-based. They were not driven by politics. So our investigation of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook in the context of political campaigns was initiated because of evidence and allegations that a British company, Cambridge Analytica, was guilty of serious data breaches. Um, And then this case became widespread and, and widely known and international and many other data protection supervisors jumped in to investigate the impact in in, in their jurisdiction. But can you imagine if I hadn't investigated and enforced the law in this context and just let Cambridge Analytica off the hook when it was squarely in our our jurisdiction? And the other point I would say is is that, you know, as an independent, nonpartisan data protection supervisor, I also initiated audits of all political parties, data brokers, political consultancies, and of course, Facebook. So it wasn't directed at one campaign or one party. And at one point, we were investigating 35 organizations. Um, So, I mean, it was a really, it was a big case. We levied a fine against Facebook for their misdeeds that was the highest amount available to us at the time, you know, a measly 500,000 pounds, less than a rounding error for, um, for Facebook. And then with regard to the other case that you brought up, um, the investigation of disclosure of security footage of Matt Hancock in a compromising position, that was a cut and dry data breach. It was about security footage in public buildings. And I know that people in the security profession and and the security watchers felt that we had to do that job. And we do the job independently without fear or favor, even if high profile individuals or or politicians are are involved. And and that's why I think independence and nonpartisanship is so important. Um, and sometimes it takes courage to take on these cases. Well, thanks for that. We have this slightly curious situation where you you investigated the the case around Matthew Hancock. To those who don't know him, he was the health secretary during the um, COVID pandemic, or much of it in the UK. Um, Matt has now obviously gone on to a celebrity uh, TV program where he's filmed twenty four seven. So uh, things uh, things have clearly moved on in in, in his life. But to, on a more serious note, Elizabeth, let's move outside of of the UK here. Let's let's talk about the introduction of the GDPR. You made the reference before about the fact that you couldn't actually, with Facebook at the time, levy a greater fine than five hundred thousand pounds. That's obviously changed now with the GDPR, and we've seen, um, and hence the Irish case that I referred to before, they have flexed those powers uh, mm-hmm. recently. 
probably too late for what many uh, of their critics would say, but we don't need to go into that. But what it what, there is this fundamental paradox that I'd like to just get your views on around the general data protection regulation, the GDPR. On the one hand, you have lots of conversations where people will say to you, it's a global standard setter. It is a source of pride for the European Union in leading global digital regulation. It has made the world sit up and take notice, most obviously in Silicon Valley, and people are copying it in other parts of the world. On the other hand, you've got this this sort of internal debate within the European Union, which is sort of saying, well, actually, the GDPR is a bit of a disappointment. It hasn't been that effective. Large tech companies haven't changed their practices particularly. There's an issue around the sort of regulatory coordination issue, cross-border issues, this one-stop shop. Um, And actually, it's a bit of a disappointment. So what is, I mean, I suppose, what is it? Is it this global source of pride and the international standard is it a disappointment or is it you know, something a bit more nuanced than that? All of the above, but I'm, I'm going to start by saying that um, on day one of GDPR, 500 million people received new rights and most companies were ready to serve those rights. So whether it be something as ordinary as subject access requests, the right to be forgotten, the right to challenge um, significant decisions made by machines, data portability. So on day one in 2018, 500 million people. And as you say, GDPR went on to inspire laws and law reform around the, around the world. There's more than 130 data protection laws around the world. And so I would say it's effective in that it raised the standards of what rights should look like. So more people have rights and there are many, many, many more complaints in the pipeline. I will also say though, that GDPR was was slow to the party. And we saw that in the early 2000s, when social media companies were growing, when the internet and cloud computing and mobile computing and applications were developing, the laws weren't strong enough. And even existing laws like the one in the UK that was 40 years old didn't have the kind of powers and enforcement that was needed for something as important as our privacy and agency online. So I think all policymakers were caught out and where the laws should have been reformed in 2000, 2005, it took until 2018. The other thing I would say about the GDPR is because it was such a massive upgrade to citizens and consumer rights, it takes time for the law to be calibrated and it takes time for regulators to get ready for increased enforcement, fines, stop processing orders, um, warnings, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking about four years. It's only been four years and we're now seeing some of the bigger enforcement actions. We also are seeing judicial reviews. We're seeing jurisprudence being established by, by the courts. And, and, you know, when new laws come into effect, four years is like a blink of an eye to get ready and, and to actually have the, the supervisors ready for all this. If we think about online safety, I mean, that is going to be a journey because the UK is arguably out in front when it comes to content moderation and and content regulation. So if you think about how long it's going to take to put the codes in place, 
and for Ofcom to actually enforce the law. I suspect you're going to see you're going to see a lot more time needed to calibrate the law. I mean, that's what I would say about GDPR. It's not a perfect law. Um, there are many flaws with the law, but it did inspire rights around the world. So, in some sense, it it's almost less that the GDPR has been too slow and been too much of a disappointment. It's almost that it was too late in coming to start with, and you making the the same argument along that with, say, the online safety bill and content moderation. One thing I wonder, um, and I'd be interested to get your views, because I know you've you've given uh, speeches and comments before about the idea of a Bretton Woods for digital regulation for data. I wonder when we think of both content moderation and data protection that part of the problem here isn't just that maybe Europe or the UK have been a bit late. It's just the total absence of the US doing anything. Do you see that as a, I mean, given that the America is home to much of the larger technology companies around the world, I mean, do you see that as a big problem or do you think Europe and the UK can continue to try and sort of nudge the rest of the world alongside with them? I think it's important that the UK play a stronger leadership role. And, you know, the UK has an opportunity to do that. Look at, look what we have here. We have great innovators. We have a strong tech sector. We have a, a European-based law, but we have U.S. sensibilities. So in a way, I think the U.K. could be a leader in initiating what probably needs to be a multilateral solution, a treaty, um, you know, a U.N. treaty that brings us all to a standard so that data can flow responsibly. But I think your question was more about is the U.S. absent from supporting responsible data flows, from getting the laws in place? Well, look, they don't have a federal privacy law. I think that's a huge gap. I think many, many believe that. And now we're waiting for Privacy Shield 2.0 to see if, if that's all going to come to fruition and there'll be another transfer mechanism. That said, I think you have to look at the U.S. at the state level to see the development and the innovation around new laws. I mean, California, as you know, has pretty much cut and pasted the UK's age-appropriate design code, the children's code, into California law. That will be in force in 2024. The tech companies, there's the law in their backyard. And so I do see the, the UK needs to play a leadership role, but I would have expected the UK to have robust and full-throated support for a treaty, a Brexit, if you, know, if you want to call it a Bretton Woods for data, we, we need the UK to step up and not be waiting in the wings for, I'll give you an example, the CBPR going global. The UK hasn't really come out and endorsed that. I mean, why not? We've got everything going for us. And I think we can be an example. Yeah. And I think there's, there's also that broader issue with the European Union as well. I think it's hard, I think, for the UK to play as strong a role in pushing global data rules while there still is that disconnect between London and Brussels more broadly in the relationship, but also while sort of both are looking over their shoulder about what happens yeah. about data transfer frameworks. And I think you know, the holy grail is obviously the federal privacy law. If we get a federal privacy law, then we can actually have a you know, a much more legally sound data transfer framework between 
the EU and the US and the UK and the US. And then to me, that a, a multilateral or maybe a plurilateral, because I'm not sure an agreement could be done with countries like China, but a plurilateral or coalition of the willing, whatever you want to call it, deal could could be much more feasible once that federal privacy law and UK yeah. EU relations are settled. Um, but we absolutely, we absolutely need that federal privacy law in the in in the US. But as I say, I think there's some some really interesting and progressive state laws around privacy that will, if anything, drive the need for a federal law. But we will see. I mean, I think the politics, I think you're right, a multilateral solution that involves Russia and China right now, uh, no. And we see so much more data localization. We see splintering, like the splinter net in Asia. So we see actually splintering and more national moves to keep data in their own jurisdiction. But, you know, I think we have to keep pushing. And I do believe that the UK could be more of a leader in this space because of what they have going for them. Okay, well, let's, we've sort of done the bit of the let's look back and we've sort of stumbled a bit into the what's, where are we now with the sort of global perspective there. But can I just pause on the UK uh, and be very parochial for a second? Um, mm -hmm. We have the uh, Data Protection and Digital Information Bill sort of in Parliament, not quite in Parliament, but coming soon. I mean, what's your view? I mean, is there... Is there a sense that more could have been done with these sets of reforms and perhaps what we have seen from the government? Yeah, um, now that I'm no longer the information commissioner, I, I, I suppose I can be more unplugged about this. Um, but I did make my views known to, to Parliament at the time. And as you say, the bill's not in its final form. The minister has announced that she's going to take comments or views, but it's not going out for a broad consultation again. I think what the government did in that bill is, is, is sort of nibbled around the edges of change without a lot of impact. And so, you know, there are some pragmatic, some administrative streamlining, I think, which is good in the law, data protection impact assessments, um, more specific, specific examples of legitimate interest, the revised research provisions, I think, have promise. But anglicization of terms for the sake of it, I think, is very unhelpful. So privacy as a profession is, is still developing. And with the UK using different terms, like instead of accountability, it's privacy management programs. Instead of a data protection officer, it's a senior responsible person. I think that just misaligns UK law from data protection terms that are known globally. So, I mean, that, that seems to be a change without substance. Most of the changes to date, I would say, are minor. And I don't think the changes will risk adequacy with the EU. But there is one worrying change um, that I have, and, and that is around the independence of the regulator. Yeah, so the, the issue... With the bill, and when you look at it, when you read what the government's trying to do, you could sort of see oh, it's actually almost, almost it's implicit, but it, it's sort of jumping out of you from the page that the constraints on which they were trying to 
draft this bill. They were clearly trying to do enough that looked like it was a a symbolic break with the EU on the GDPR, so getting rid of the data protection officers. So that's sort of quite symbolic and you know, has a bit of impact and a bit of a headline to it. But at the same time, as you say, it's sort of nibbling around the edges, largely, I suspect, because more radical reform might start getting you into more awkward territory around what happens with the EU-UK uh, data adequacy decision. And it sort of seems to jump out from you as as you look at that um, and seems sort of quite clear. I mean, we'll have to see what comes back out. Maybe there is going to be more radical reform. Rishi Sunak, has, you know, in the leadership campaign over the summer, did say he wanted more fundamental reform of the GDPR. So uh, let's see if he comes forward with, with something more fundamental. I wonder if what he actually focuses on is more around things like alternatives to data adequacy uh, assessments mm-hmm. and so on in the data transfer framework. And the implications of that will be uh, interesting to play out. I wanted to just, though, Elizabeth, to take a slight step back on this, um, and maybe to your comments before around what happens, and why isn't the UK taking more of a leading position here? It could do more potentially internationally. I mean, one thing I would observe compared to, say, a country like Germany uh, and the debate in Brussels that is fed through from a lot of member state discussions is just that there doesn't seem to be much of a public discourse around data protection in the UK. And I don't know if that's just a media thing or a reflection of cultural differences between the UK and other countries within the European Union. And I just wonder, as we think about these reforms, whether there's a bit of a public consent deficit around Mm -hmm. data protection that we have, through our membership of the European Union, got the GDPR, but there's never great enthusiasm for it. And I think maybe that comes through in some of the the conversations, the debate and the drafting that we're we're talking about now. Do you, particularly given you are, you were in charge of data protection in the UK. I mean, what what do you think about that? Did you, did you think that's correct? And did that worry you? Um, I think it's really an interesting point and an interesting question because coming from Canada, coming from North America, and being a regulator in 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 those jurisdictions, I thought that the public in the U.S. was concerned about government surveillance, but pretty relaxed about commercial surveillance. And when I came to the U.K., I almost felt it was the opposite. So I felt that that there was more acceptance of government surveillance, law enforcement. I mean, if you think about the kind of the cameras and CCTV that have been around since the 1970s, people are pretty relaxed about that, but they, but they are suspicious of commercial surveillance. So when that goes to my comments about the numbers, the, the tens of thousands of complaints about nuisance texts and nuisance calls, this is a really big deal. Predatory marketing is a really big deal in the UK. So, but back to your question, is there a, a consent deficit? Do people just take their data protection rights for granted. And, you know, in the UK, they probably do. We've had data protection laws, maybe without enforcement powers for 40 years. And the in the EU, there are cultural and historic reasons why data protection is seen as and is a foundational human right. Um, you know, they, European countries have had authoritarian governments where data has been used against the citizen. So 
I think data protection doesn't quite have the same impact on people's lives. And, you know, memories are, memories are long and history plays a different, is, is, is quite different in the, in the EU. That said, though, um, when the GDPR came into force in the UK, there were tens of thousands of complaints coming from citizens and consumers. And, and so, you know, that's an issue. The other thing I would call out is that data protection authorities, data protection supervisors have mainly been full of, of lawyers who see individual cases as a binary yes or no answer and haven't taken a role in public education. So for regulators, I think as part of public education, it's important to remind the public why privacy is important. Yes, and I think that's that's even more so the case because to my previous point, I, there aren't many politicians who will spend much time doing that. Um, so it, it does sort of fall onto the regulators themselves to make that case. Elizabeth, I was struck by the point you made between the contrast in government surveillance and commercial surveillance. I mean, in, in research that we published recently, which was focused on the metaverse, but had broader implications for technology and data protection and regulation, it was striking that the polling findings in the UK towards tech companies were much worse than the US, but they were also worse than France, a European peer. And I think that might reinforce some of your, uh, your analysis there that attitudes towards commercial companies in the realm of data protection is, is quite negative. And actually, the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation published some polling earlier this month about who do you have trust in and how they use your data. And then social media companies came up very, very badly from that as well. So I think there's definitely a theme here. But just to, to, just to take that point then, so can we do a contrast then? If, if there may be, we're sort of open about whether there's a consent deficit possibly around data protection. Do you think the same for other forms of digital regulation? I don't know. There's the online safety bill coming up and online uh, safety regulation that Ofcom uh, will have to mm. do. I mean, do you see any parallels there or do you think it's a completely different story? Uh, I, think it, I think that's so interesting because the online safety bill is, is the shiny new kid on the block. Um, and yet regulating content in the face of big tech is, is a huge challenge. And it's a challenge for which there is no blueprint. And you have the UK actually leading the way on this. Can't ever see an online safety bill equivalent passed in the US. Their freedom of expression is just, it's too strong. It's hardwired into their culture. Online safety, though, I think is also big news because it runs right up against what law enforcement are doing in terms of criminal failures and criminal cases. We have the devastating case of, of Molly Russell, for example, and what happened to her online. But data protection, a bit more bureaucratic, and it rarely tips into criminal activity. But if the online safety bill becomes law, it's going to take years of calibration before the codes under the law will be actively enforced. And I think Melanie Dawes would, would share that view. It's going to take time. And there's no jurisprudence here. So it is really interesting that, you know, the shiny new kid on the block 
feels like the public wants that, but I think it relates to what you said earlier on and about the the polling is there is a trust deficit in the UK against big tech. And and it's stronger, as you say, than than in France or even Germany, for example. Yeah, which is funny because having I started my career in the European Parliament and having seen the debates there, it's quite interesting, the mismatch here, that there is this more sceptical public opinion towards big tech here. But UK policy up until the online safety bill has been pretty facilitating of technology development and investment. Yeah, Yeah, innovation and inward investment by large technology companies. And they were always seen as one of the most favorable member states within the European Union uh, towards technology companies. The UK was seen as one of the countries watering down the GDPR during its legislative process. Then on the other hand, you would have you would have seen French politicians and even German politicians be heavily critical, but uh, and therefore you we perhaps naively have translated a direct link between what the French public think to how their politicians are expressing it. But it's a very different, uh, very different dynamic and very different situation. If we stick with Brussels, stick with uh, Europe, and now we look ahead. So we've done the UK. The UK is reforming the GDPR. We've got some views on on that and whether it, it's potentially a bit of a missed opportunity for for more radical, more interesting reform than what's on the table. But what we have coming up with the EU is we've got an evaluation of the EU's general data protection regulation. I believe that's scheduled for 2024, which also happens to be the same year that we get a new European Parliament and we'll get a new European Commission. And it doesn't take a great leap of faith to imagine that top of that new commissioner's in-tray is going to be how about you reform GDPR and have a GDPR 2.0. And for an ambitious, publicity-hungry new commissioner, that seems quite tempting to me. Mm -hmm. So if that were to go ahead, and you said perhaps there were more radical, more interesting things that the UK could have done, what would you like to see if the EU were to move forward with reform, which let's say it's talked about in 2024, might be legislated legislated for in 2025 and maybe brought into force a few years later? Uh, I mean, just taking a step back from that, I think what's going to be very interesting in the review of the GDPR is the relationship between the GDPR and all these other digital laws and regulations. There's a proliferation, the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, the AI Act, all of these other initiatives and and policy changes. So it used to be just the GDPR. And on a data breach, the first one to the scene and the only one to the scene would be the data protection supervisor. But now you've got all of these other regulators and the intersection between these policy areas. So that needs to be figured out in the GDPR reform. So who's on first? Which regulator is taking what issue? But here's the good thing about the GDPR. And, you know, I would be reluctant to make significant changes because the the law is medium blind and it's technology neutral. It's principle-based, it's risk-based, and I think it's flexible enough, and I would argue the UK law as well, flexible enough to tackle new technologies including AR and VR in the in the metaverse. So because of the principles, those old chestnuts, 
can be drawn on to regulate new technologies. And I would be I would be cautious to make major changes to the law because there is so much still to exploit in the EU GDPR. So little has been done on codes of conduct and certification. So little has been done on the concept of fairness, which is a principle, an enforceable principle, and a significant place to start from, for example, in regulating algorithms. So there's a lot more to be done. And I'd make one more observation. And the GDPR is a regulation, but it also contains 99 derogations. So it operates with a lot of flexibility to the member states. And um, I think there's almost too much flexibility granted to national governments. And that makes the European Data Protection Board so difficult. And it's so challenging for them to come to an agreement, even to write guidelines on children's privacy, because they all have different views. And, you know, that age of consent is a derogation in the law. Can I ask then, given the the enforcement and supervision and the system around that, with all the controversy that has been directed towards the Irish authorities, would you personally be in favour of the EU having some form of single EU level regulator? If we look at, say, the Digital Services Act, where there's going to be EU level supervision of very large online platforms, or you look at the Digital Markets Act, where you have the equivalent for gatekeepers, so probably be the same mm-hmm. sorts of companies, but not necessarily always. We're seeing this move towards Europeanizing of that regulation for at least the biggest companies. So logic would take us to the point where that might be applied to the GDPR in a future reform. Is that something you think would be a good, bad thing, bit of both? First of all, I'd say that the the Helen Dixon, the the Irish data protection supervisor, um, I think is is doing yeoman's work given the size of her office and the fact that most tech companies are based in in Ireland. Um, I think I think there should and could be an EU regulator that's taking on the largest companies, the, the platforms, and the the largest cross-border cases. I do think that's logical. <clears throat> there's lots, I mean, there's there's much to say about that because unlike those other regulations that we're talking about the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, the AI Act. I mean, data protection is about, it derives from human rights. And therefore, I think national governments will want to hold on to that. But I mean, given that the EU is a single entity, given that the GDPR is a regulation, not a directive, then I could see that kind of change in in the future. For the largest cases, the big platforms the companies where millions of EU citizens and residents are. And, you know, I could see that uh, happening in the future. Yeah, I, I, I could see it myself. I think there is a slight institutional question, which will be a bit boring to most listeners, around exactly how you set up that authority, whether you change the European Data Protection Board into a European agency of some description, 
there are some rules around what what exactly agencies can do, which we've seen in financial yeah. services regulation, whether they can actually take certain decisions or not. Which is why often with the most recent digital regulation, I think part of the reason why it's ended up in the commission is because the commission has those powers should they assume them. But I don't necessarily think it's appropriate for the European Commission uh, to assume a data protection regulatory uh, yeah. role, particularly given the importance you flagged earlier of independence in these decisions. Um, can I just finish up, Elizabeth, with just one final question? You you mentioned uh, an, an issue which we've been following very closely at Global Council recently, which is VR, AR, so virtual reality and augmented reality, and how digital regulation at the moment applies to new technologies as they evolve. And in the report that we published recently on the regulation of the metaverse, a couple of things came up uh, where people were particularly concerned about the evolution of those uh, technologies. One is those sort of headsets, whether that's a VR headset or an AR glasses or whatever it is, both are predicated on tracking your eye movement and the bio de- biometric data which follows from that. And these somewhat at times dystopian predictions around adverts popping up and you get an adverts more on just what you look at and for how long rather than actually anything you say or touch or click. Um, the other one is then if you have AR glasses and we're all walking around the streets with AR glasses, they are, again, predicated on always recording cameras. So how does things like bystander consent, bystander privacy work if we're all going around filming each other? And there's a whole host of questions there. Now, you said before the GDPR is technology neutral, principle-based. Do you think that principle-based system can withstand that collision with new technologies that raise such fundamental questions around our rights? I think the metaverse, no one can quite agree on what the metaverse is right now. So, um, but it's not one, one place. It's not a separate place. So it doesn't matter what the name of a certain company is. There's not going to be one metaverse. So but your question is around, is the GDPR flexible enough, the UK GDPR and the EU GDPR, is it flexible enough to be able to encompass regulating AR and VR? I would say as a starting point, yes. I couldn't see coming up with a bespoke set of rules for virtual reality and augmented reality. And those principles that are already in law, accountability, transparency, Fairness, these issues are, these principles actually, I think, allow regulators to get their arms around these new technologies. That said, we don't know exactly what the metaverse is going to bring. And you've highlighted some issues of um, some privacy issues around the scale of the collection of sensitive information being biometrics. How are we going to deal with that? Well, I think the responsibility would be on the companies to make sure that bystander privacy is protected. And, you know, there's all kinds of AI-driven solutions to the capturing of bystanders. I mean, even as long ago as Google Street View, there's AI that actually makes sure that people's faces and license plates aren't aren't captured. So I I, I think that we could try with those basic principles and whether or not there needs to be some some codes of practice that are more specific around that technology 
again, I said, those are unexplored, unexploited <clears throat> parts of the GDPR. And I, I, I say we could try. Yeah, it's sort of, there's this interesting point that came up in our research that in Europe, at least, and this isn't just privacy, this is, say, Online Safety Bill or the Digital Services Act on the European side, that we're not going to see what we saw in the late 90s, the 2000s, even the early 2010s. Regulation is here and it's going to be applied. And technology neutral, principle based legislation means it can be applied and can evolve with the new technologies. But there is that fundamental question of how it's applied. And there's a real role there, both not only for the regulators themselves, but also the businesses in interpreting how these rules are applied and coming up with new solutions. So, you know, are we going to see pop-ups for consent or not? Probably not. We might have something at the start that gives certain more consent mm. solutions. Or how are we going to see adverts labeled on a VR headset? Because it's not straightforward necessarily. The solutions that we have for text or for video aren't necessarily going to be the same for for virtual reality. And there's going to be a very interesting interplay between corporates and the regulators and setting in practice what those rules mm. are and how bespoke they are to individual platforms or whether they are more universal uh, than that. And I think following through this, and this is something you probably have some sympathy for, is just a prioritization and capacity question for regulators. If you're if you're the ICO now, you are worrying about platforms that have billions of users worldwide and there aren't vr platforms that have billions of users worldwide and you only have finite resources so the natural inclination is going to be where the risk currently is but that has to be finally balanced with where the risk could emerge in the future and that's a difficult thing for regulators to have to deal with uh, and to take those calls it is a difficult challenge for regulators that said i think the advantage of um, the ICO and actually the French uh, CNIL Data Protection Authority, they have sandboxes and they, they run programs where new innovations, um, new services can be sort of beta tested with the regulator. And I think, you know, there you see enforcement absolutely is going to be about where all the people are and where are the greatest harms. And, you know, the ICO's case, they're absolutely focused on children's children's privacy online and, and looking at the big platforms. But from, you know, the incubation stage of trying to make sure there's privacy by design, there are programs and services that support innovation and work with companies to find privacy by design. And I, you know, I do think some gaming companies are in the ICO's sandbox. And, you know, though that's where AI, that's where, um, virtual reality and augmented reality is going right now is gaming and retail and education. So, you know, those use cases are absolutely good candidates for a regulatory sandbox. Well, Elizabeth, on that note, uh, I think we'll conclude. And just to say thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, that was a tour de force through the past, the present, and the future of data protection. Uh, so it's been a privilege to have you on. And just as I'm sure the listeners, as much as I did, really enjoyed that discussion. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. As always, if you, your business, or your investment are exposed to what we've been discussing today, whether that's data protection, online safety, or the regulation of the metaverse, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our details at www 
global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Worth noting that if you go onto the insights page, you'll be able to find the research that I referenced throughout the podcast on regulating the metaverse. So thank you very much uh, for joining us and uh, please tune in next time round. Bye-bye.